go ahead. Coffee Connection, Ojai, California. You were eating a bagel, lightly burnt. You burnt it on purpose. No butter, Smucker's jam, one grape, and one strawberry. You poured homemade almond milk into your coffee from the Ziploc bag you were carrying in your pocket. You looked up and caught me staring. So, you said, did I ever tell you how I found out I'm lactose intolerant? Did you take a blood test? Or arrive at that conclusion after getting a few tummy aches, I replied. No, you said. I took LSD and a cow spoke to me. Told me I'm allergic. Well, I thought to myself, that was unexpected. Happy Townie Tuesday, everyone. Welcome back to the Townies podcast, where we present original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. Thank you, Sarah Hardigan, for a lovely start to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Kim Maxwell, and the stories you're about to hear were developed in my writing and performance workshop in Ventura County, California. Today on the podcast, we have the very talented Miss Lisa Williams and her fabulous story, Secret Life. I sit there playing and replaying, memorizing lyrics, listening for hours upon hours, songs that make me weep, wonder, travel, fall in love, and feel connected with someone, anyone who also has big, tender feelings. And I sometimes cry uncontrollably when I hear great music. Welcome to the studio, Miss Lisa. Thank you, Kim. It's nice to see you. It's so good to see you. I get to see your face on magazines and in my emails, but you don't really get to see me. <laughs> I do. I just wait outside your front door. <laughs> oh, that's what that was. <laughs> so it has been a very long journey uh, that you have had with writing. It has been very long. Yes. When did it start? Oh, goodness. I mean, hmm, classes? Classes, probably about 20 years. Mm -hmm. But I can remember, you know, journaling and writing as a kid way long before that. Mm -hmm. How old do you yeah. remember the journaling? Uh, probably like adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, but I was always kind of like a word nerd. I mean, when I was seven or eight, mm -hmm. maybe seven or eight, I remember um, – doing the Reader's Digest, you know, studying the vocabulary <laughs> words and, and filling in those things. And then I asked for a dictionary for Christmas, which is kind of wow. weird. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's – you're a nerd. <laughs> I'm a nerd. Um, so tell me about the road then from when you started in adolescence journaling, um, the, the road between there and like this program that you just completed at UCLA. Goodness. That's so, a big question. That's a big question. Between adolescence and now? Yeah. I mean, has it been has it, have you been writing straight through or have there been breaks, big breaks, little breaks? There's been breaks, but um I do it so I think naturally I don't even realize how much I'm doing it because at my house right now, I literally have like tubs, you know, storage tubs full of writing and journals. So I have journals from over 20 years ago. Wow. And I just, I guess I have carried them with me my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't start taking writing classes, though, until I moved to California in my 20s mm -hmm. from New York. And what, what prompted that? What prompted, being as this was in your body this whole time, what all of a sudden with the move to California mm. inspired you to start taking classes here? Well, I think it's something that I always wanted to do. In fact, after Secret Life, I wrote a piece, and we'll probably talk about that maybe later at UCLA, called uh, Inner Voice. Mm -hmm. And it was about my journey um, going to college and uh, working in a profession that I really didn't want to do. And I kind of powered through it for survival purposes. And I got really, really sick when I was in my um, like early 20s, I think from the stress of all of that. Mm -hmm. And I essentially left everything. I left my career that I had worked really hard for, my, my place I was living in New York, my mm -hmm. relationships, and I moved California on my own, which is really what I, I 
my intuition had been telling me for many years before I even started college. And I was out here for um, a short time and life started opening up for me because I started doing more of what I really wanted to do. And you were just talking about the program at UCLA. And I remember when you were applying for that program and you were so nervous. I was. Yeah. How did you cope with, you knew you wanted to do the program, but your nervousness was between you and the application and the program. How did you deal with your nervousness? It's so amazing to look back at that because that happened after I performed this piece uh, at your studio, Secret Life. Uh, It was my ex-husband, actually, who who saw it and he's a writer and a, and a graduate of um, UCLA film school and thought Mm -hmm. that, you know, I really, this scholarship opportunity came across and he thought that I should go for it. And I was so, like you said, kind of petrified. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what that was about. Probably just, it had been a long time. Am I worthy enough to do that kind of thing? And I had, you had written like a wonderful, most amazing letter of recommendation I've ever received. It was so gorgeous, beautiful, and praising. And uh, I had it on my wall for a long time. (laughs) Yeah, in my bedroom to remind me. And um, I applied anyway. I, I, I did get the scholarship. But when I got the scholarship, I remembered going to pick up the phone to like call you, to call him, to thank people who had helped me. And I could not remember how to work my phone. (laughs) Like that's how blown my mind was when I received it. Wow. So how do I deal with my nervousness? I don't know. I walk a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I walk a lot. I write. uh, I meditate. Mm -hmm. I breathe. I play music. And then you just do it. You're still scared, but you just do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I deal with a lot of fear and anxiety, Mm -hmm. and um, it's been there for a long time. And I think, you know, I always say personal essay like this, to me, is the most vulnerable art form there is. I can't Mm -hmm. think of something more more vulnerable, because we're talking about our inner thoughts and feelings. So when I started taking classes Mm -hmm. um, in my 20s at UCLA, uh, Writer's Extension, I took fiction, I took screenwriting, I took many, many poetry, different kinds of classes. And um, I took my first personal essay writing class in 2010. And um, I realized that that was really my genre because I think, you know, truth is, reality is much stranger than fiction. (laughs) You know, you can't really make this stuff up. (laughs) That's quite true. Yeah. I remember the first piece that you wrote in class, mm-hmm. which was Olay, which was, again, it was such a fresh and real situation that, that the piece itself was generated from a pitch, which is where you just sort of verbally express an idea that you have. And I think that it is in the Cool as a Cucumber episode, which is episode 21 in the first season, so people can listen to Olay. But that that story came to you from like kind of a traumatic situation like you I I remember you crying your way through the pitch is that what you remember yeah I do and I remember crying my way through the first time I came to your class which is another funny story because I had never even signed up for your class I just appeared at 9 (laughs) a.m. do you remember that I don't I'm getting a little off topic but I'll come back I just think it's really funny because um like I said I had not registered I had moved to Ohio and lived here for a few months I had seen your sign that said you know find your voice and whatever it says and Mm -hmm. looked at the schedule and I'm in my kitchen you know and it's like five to nine and I'm I'm nervous and pacing and I'm thinking am I gonna go am I not gonna go am I gonna go and I drove over and you came out and I said you know I just told you how I felt and that I thought I wanted to do this but I'm really really nervous and you came out and you said you know what I don't know why but I put an extra chair out today That's what you said to me. Aww. And you can come in and, and be with us for the first half. I normally don't do this and see if you want to stay. And that really, really helped me. Oh. And that's how I started in your class. Well, that's really lovely. Yes. So in this, then, in this incredibly long journey that you have had, how do you keep yourself inspired to write? 
How do you keep the bucket full? Yeah. Well, um, I do. I have learned to reward myself for for things. So I know we we've talked about that in your class, but I've worked on that for a long time. And you know, even on the way here today, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do for myself afterwards? And you know, as we've talked about, it doesn't need to be gigantic it can be but it it does need to be intentional Mm -hmm. you know so i'm gonna go have a hot cocoa with my son after this and just intentionally kind of acknowledge myself uh for for doing the interview well then i'm gonna transition good writers always read is there anybody that inspires you is there anything that you're reading that you're obsessed with well, I read a lot of nonfiction stuff now, and I lead, I, I actually study a lot, like personal growth kind of things, which uh-huh. is really weaved into my work as well. But um, the first, I think the author that really inspired me foundationally is probably Anne Lamott Aww. with her personal mm-hmm. essays. And um, yeah, she's just so real raw and funny and faithful and... Um, I just adore her and operating instructions, you know, one of her first books when she was having her first child was just hilarious and and really helped me through the birth of my first child. And um, I love reading David Sedaris. I love David Sedaris. He is so funny. I got to see him in Santa Barbara last year. And um, I love all stand-up comedy on Netflix. (laughs) That's my go-to. That's kind of my go-to, how I keep inspired and relaxed and all that. It all begins in the basement of my Nona's house. I am eight years old, and it's there that I first escape from the loud, abrasive, argumentative Italian family of food addicts and alcoholics down the steep, dark concrete stairs, past the washing machine and the hum of the second refrigerator. In the corner of the semi-paneled room with a cold, off-white linoleum floor is my secret treasure my Uncle JoJo's record player, and a stack of 45s. Woo! I set out with the curiosity and delight of a kid in a candy store. So many sensual surprises. The click of the circular adapter and that first scratch of the needle on vinyl gives me a buzz of aliveness. The music tastes like sunshine, sounds like soul, and feels like freedom! We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun! (laughs) Kurt Cobain's first 45, by the way, I found out today, so I'm in good company. A song about death! I love it! I am eight years old. I'm a weird kid. (laughs) Like Kurt Cobain. I sit there playing and replaying, memorizing lyrics, listening for hours upon hours, songs that make me weep, wonder, travel, fall in love, and feel connected with someone, anyone, who also has big, tender feelings. And I sometimes cry uncontrollably when I hear great music. I am 10 years old. I wake up with a dream so otherworldly yet so real. The weather is wild and windy, and I see something beckoning me in the distance. As I brave the storms and mystery and travel toward it, I notice I am now approaching the edge of a very high cliff, and everything behind me has disappeared. As I zero in through the fog, I see that perched just at the edge of this cliff, in all its sheer belonging, is a small black piano with a white candle on it. There's a sense of waiting, of wanting to be played. I look down over the edge of this cliff, and at the bottom there's a watery cove covered in pillows of mist, inviting me, pulling me like a magnet to its destiny. As I leap to the waters below, free-falling all the way down, I hear a voice trail behind me, Remember Gershwin! (laughs) Even though I won't know who George Gershwin is for many years, because I'm 10, the image of that piano stays with me, and I sometimes cry uncontrollably when I hear great music. I am 25 years old. I'm working for a record label in L.A. 
I'm in a very intimate live music lounge on Melrose Avenue. Rufus Wainwright, the respected renegade pianist and folk singer about my age at the time is playing 10 feet in front of me. I watch his authentically flamboyant artistry, his attunement with the piano, his soul turned inside out in those songs. I am swept into the center of the music like a wave capturing me and curling me into its whirlpool of emotion and I cry and cry and cry and my date doesn't know what to do with me. <laughs> I think about running out the door. He probably does too. <laughs> but I don't, I stay. My nose runs, I have no Kleenex, I'm sleeveless. I can't hold it back. The faucet has turned into a psh fire hose. And I sometimes cry uncontrollably when I hear great music. I'm 46. I'm at the Granada Theater in Santa Barbara, California. I sit in the fifth row, curiously watching the orchestra tune and anticipating the symphony. The first violin concertmaster, the conductor, the violin soloist step out onto stage. They begin promptly at 3 p.m. and with the practice precision of masters and the passion of an all-consuming lover, they leap into Vivaldi's four seasons. My heart responds to every precise and passionate note, to the complexity of the music, their dedication, their alchemy. I feel the deep history, the devotion, the endurance, the immense focus, the nonverbal communication, holding this all together in a web of harmony and elegance. Ah, it's happening again. <laughs> Tears roll down my face. I am no longer in the Granada or in the audience. I am in the music. Again, my nose runs. Again, I have no Kleenex. Again, sleeveless. Why haven't I learned? I look around at the attentive audience and they have pleasantly proper smiles on their faces, but no one is unraveling the way I am. <laughs> listen like a normal person I begin to fear I may erupt and cry out loud here the passion building so strongly in my body makes my hands tremble and shake and twitch why do I feel all of this everyone else is just enjoying themselves and 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 I sometimes cry uncontrollably when I hear great music As soon as I see it, I know it's mine. It is black and glossy and living in Westlake Village. It's elegant, just like the one in the dream of my 10-year-old self. This doesn't make sense. I don't have the money. It cost a fucking fortune to move, to tune, to tune again. It's going to take up half my living room. I may have to move. It's a 400-pound instrument. I don't even know how to play piano. <laughs> I have too many problems to deal with already. It's irrational. What is wrong with me? And sometimes I cry uncontrollably when I hear great music. I'm 47. It's Friday, February 11th at 4.30 p.m. in Ojai, California. My new piano teacher, Fern, turns to me. You really show up. You practice and you're able to replicate the music. You're learning fast. I am so proud of you. It still doesn't make any sense. I still don't know how I'm going to pay for it. It needs another expensive tuning. It does take up half my living room, and I may need to move. So I place a white candle on my black piano. Above it, I hang a painting of a long, mysterious road to the unknown. And this, this sanctuary is for the bravest of souls. And when I light the candle and play that piano, I don't think about anything else. I don't have any problems. I sometimes become my eight-year-old self, sitting with those 45s in the basement, 
We had joy. We had fun. We had seasons in the sun. It is about death, about what I'm going to do with my one beautiful life. And when I play my piano, I sometimes cry uncontrollably. Secret Life was written and performed by Lisa Williams in 2017. I think you should just get a nice deep breath into that and just let yourself have it. That's why I wanted to talk. I probably will. I'll probably like melt down later. But that's why I wanted to talk about that pitch, too, because it was such a great question because it was unusual. I think it's unusual for someone to get up and do a pitch. Yeah. I think I was the only person in the class who did it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was not funny. And you, I remember you were like, that's your story. And I was like, it is? <laughs> So this piece is about a reclamation of sorts. What did you feel like you were reclaiming with that piano? Okay, well, um, I, I remember in class, first of all, we, uh, I, had, I wound up with about seven stories. And these are first drafts, right? These are one, two, whatever, three pages. And they all had to do with music, whether it was the piano, this keyboard that I had been carrying around for a long time that I never played, mm-hmm. uh, wanting to be a dancer when I was younger and not getting to fulfill that dream. Mm-hmm. And so I just saw, oh, gosh, okay, this is what's coming forward. And it was after a bad breakup. So you know how after bad breakups... uh, Yes, I do. Yes. Everybody pretty much (laughs) listening knows this, that, you know, you can feel like you've lost a part of yourself. It's kind of like, okay, what what do I really want now? You're coming back to yourself. And when I asked those questions inside and from the writing in the class came forward this part of me that loves music and had this keyboard that I always wanted to play. And in fact, one of my pieces was like a conversation with the keyboard. And that's how I chose, I I just kind of went with what was present. And I was reclaiming the part of me that as a little, um, as a child really loved music and as an adolescent wanted to to do something more creative. Mm -hmm. And I just, I didn't know how at the time, and I didn't kind of have the familial support. So that's why I say, you know, I wound up going into something that was more about survival rather than who I really am. That mm-hmm. was the reclamation. Mm. Writing and re- – well, well, first of all, I I got the piano. You did get so the piano. So I got pi- the mm-hmm. – yeah, I got the piano, and I, I started taking lessons. And then I wrote the story mm. – from that and I got to you know weave in all of these memories of myself including mm-hmm. that 10 year old self with a dream which was very real which I've remembered since I was 10 you know and my younger self with the records um, and playing the piano it it healed a part of me that until this point had not yet been expressed mm-hmm that's what it did for me and it gave me a confidence and then it led me to this wonderful story mm-hmm. um, as a storyteller and you know this story is so meaningful to me it's been really powerful actually because I've been in groups of like you know six you know women's groups or mastermind groups or whatever and I've shared the story with people who are not uh, writers or storytellers but in one group I was in two out of the six women reclaimed playing their piano that they had not played in like over 20 years. So that's a really powerful thing to hear a story, a 10 minute story and have that kind of movement in someone else. That's, that's partly why I do it. I mean, I I do it to heal myself, but I also do it to, as you would say, give permission to others as well and inspire others. Well, tell me about that exchange, because it's one thing to write the story and have and own the story on the inside. But then when you hand it off to the audience and they take that breath in and they respond to it, what? tell me about that exchange. What's the difference between writing it and then taking the risk of sharing it out loud? Oh, it's so amazing. And this I truly have you to thank for. Thank thank for this because you were my first teacher that helped me take it from the page and all this underground writing that I've been doing for 20 years and share it publicly. 
Um, what is it like? My favorite part is communing with the audience. Mm. That's really it. So um, when I I found, and I didn't really know it until I did it, right? Because mm. I had never done it before. And I'm not a trained, you know, I don't have any acting training. So I am really my real self there. And, you know, I just ground and I, I take a moment to connect with everybody in the audience and um, really take them on a ride with me. Mm -hmm. And you taught me some of that. And then that is the best feeling I have when I'm doing it. So mm -hmm. it's a very communal heart-to-heart -heart experience. Aww. That is, again, a very lovely thing. I am exceedingly curious as to whether you are still taking piano lessons. I am not right now. Mm -hmm. I took piano lessons for about a year, honestly, until I ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I still have my piano. Mm -hmm. I still tinker with it. I'm still kind of stuck at learning Hallelujah by <laughs> Leonard Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> and my son gets to tinker with it and play. So I do, I do see it and communicate with it every day, though. Well, tell me about Hallelujah. How did you? How is that like? Is Hallelujah? why is that the one song that you I, are? I don't. Oh, I just, um, one day I just, um, you know, I am a lover of music and that, that song is a very, um, oh my gosh, it's such a powerful song. And it, it's when, I don't know what was going on in my life, but one day I literally sat in bed and listened to that song, different versions of it for about seven hours. Wow. Talk about obsessive. <laughs> so, um, wow. That's you know, whatever I was processing, that's that song was helping me process it. <laughs> and so then I wanted to learn it. And did you really end up having to move? I didn't wind up having to move, but I still fear I may. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to have fears looming <laughs> to, you know, season the material. <laughs> I still think what am I like I've thought about moving into like a, a an RV and I'm like, where am I gonna put the piano? Like it still <laughs> comes up. It's an ongoing dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> well, is there anything, any advice that you would love to impart to um, a young writer or somebody who's maybe taken a long break from writing or somebody who has always wanted to and for whatever reason they never did? Is there any any wisdom you would like to impart to those folk? Well, I would start by saying it's never too late, you know, like the quote, it's never too late to become who you might have been. And I did not start publicly sharing until I was, what, like 46 years old. Mm -hmm. So um, it's taken me a long time. And we all have secret lives. There's secret passions and interests that we hold that we really want to express that we're, we're, we have fears about. And I think it's really important to honor those and go forward because you will feel so much more healed and integrated as a person by doing so. And it's just a joy. Just a joy? Just a joy. Well, you're a joy. Yeah, so are you, Kim Maxwell. Thank you so much for all the work you do. Uh, well, I adore you. Uh, I adore you, too. And thank you for always, always bringing your whole self to every single project. All your tears, all the snot, the big, huge heart, uh -huh. everything, your talent. It's been lovely. You got it. Thanks Thank for coming you. in. Thank you. Coming up on the Townies podcast. One day we noticed the branches were attracting a lot of spiders <laughs> and a lot of condoms. <laughs> Emilio Uribe. Hey, Townies. It's your producer, Lily Brown, here coming at you live. Um, please join us this summer in Monte Castello di Vibio, which is in Umbria, Italy. We're doing our first townies workshop abroad. I have been brushing up on my Italian. Io sono una mela. I am an apple. You're going to use that often. <laughs> è un uccello. It is a bird. La mosca è nel bicchiere. The fly is in the glass. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you'll join us. It's going to be a blast. We're going to be doing two weeks of writing and performance workshop stuff, drinking wine, eating all the food, and it's going to be super fun. Uh, we're going to do a performance in a 400-year-old recently restored opera house, June 30th to July 15th. Learn more information at kimmaxwellstudio.com slash retreats. Io una fragola. <laughs> 
I have a strawberry. <laughs> Hello, Townies Podcast. Felix Penny here, writer of Cassius Clay. For Cassius Clay, I wanted to write a song about that feeling you get when you realize you want more out of life. It follows two characters who come to this realization separately, but end up meeting each other and finding comfort in knowing that they both want the same thing. I hope you enjoy. Samson Jones from Providence Road In a well-off town by the banks of the coast Drapes his suit across his bed The thoughts of the day rushing through his head He takes a hit, a drag from a bone He stares at the world through the screen of the phone What's to think of these Catalan As a boy in a suit was Cassius Clay, written and performed by Twin Trip. All right, townies, it's time for another free write. I'm going to give you a prompt from my class, so if you'd like to participate, hit pause and just write for five minutes or more if you would like. But as always, try not to edit yourself as you go along. Sometimes the best way to get to the heart of something is not to think about it. Today's prompt is, what was the very first record, album, CD, or song you bought? And how embarrassing is it? (laughs) How much did you love them? And what was your favorite thing about that artist? When you're done, make sure that you type it up exactly as it is right now. Save it. Then you can go back and edit it later. Our next and final guest on the podcast today is longtime student and friend of mine, Emilio Uribe, talking about his piece, Big Enough Tree. 
It is so lovely to have you here in the studio, my love. And thanks for having me. So you have been taking class since you were like 12? Yeah. Yeah. 12, 12 is accurate. And, and so how long does that officially make it? How many years? Uh, I guess 11 in June. Wow. You've been in class for 11 years. Yeah. Wow, you should teach it. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> I don't have that kind of patience. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, that was what, what, what sort of made you want to take the class in the first place at 12? Um, it was my mom's idea originally because um, I've always liked that kind of stuff, but I've never written and performed myself. Mm-hmm. So that was what I kind of had to get used to mm-hmm. is performing my, my own stuff, mm-hmm. which uh, was really kind of weird at first. And and then, so you took class basically all the way sort of through junior high and senior high, and then you took kind of a long break after high school. Yeah. What decide, what, did, what made you decide to come back to it after high school? Um, I guess I was just kind of getting bored of everything, like just doing the same thing again and again. So mm-hmm. I thought it would bring back a little bit of something. And did it? Yeah. I mean, I had a great time. I mean, yeah, like, I forgot how frustrating it is sometimes when you hit the wall multiple times. <laughs> I forgot the what it wall. felt like after, like, two years of not doing it and then doing it again, just remembering how frustrated I get. <laughs> yeah, because every time yeah. you hit the wall, it absolutely feels like the worst <laughs> time ever, like, way worse than the time before. Right. Was that true again? Yeah, it was very even? true, yeah. Wow. And what do you do to deal with the wall? Like, when you get stuck, how do you how do you work through it? Um, I just either take a break or write something else or doodle. I don't know, just something else, get my mind off it for a little bit and then revisit it, maybe with somebody, <laughs> uh, and try to see what I don't like and have a better um, look at it. Mm-hmm. And you you have like at least two jobs that I know of, so you work like a million hours. Yeah. How in that time, how do you find time to sort of take care of yourself artistically, like keep your bucket full. How do you find time to do that, and what do you do? Um, just a lot of chocolate bars. <laughs> chocolate bars? Yeah. Um, That's and your go-to for self-care? Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just, just trying to get enough sleep is the key. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you have a, a, a bedtime ritual? No, I don't. I just, you know, as soon as it hits midnight, I'm like, okay, I'm going to trouble. I should go to bed now. Mm-hmm. So when you came to class— did you have this piece in mind? Did you want no, to write? No, I had no. I I never. I mean, the one time when I first came back after the break, I had an idea what I wanted. Mm-hmm. But after that, it reminded me that you never go into the class knowing what you want to write, because mm-hmm. that just kind of puts a limit on what you're trying to write for the class. And with all the free writes and all the cool like mind games we do, I don't know. Uh, you just can find. Every, anything you want, so just don't go into the class uh, set in stone. Mm-hmm. Always go there kind of open-minded. You're going to find something. And if you could do absolutely anything else <laughs> with these incredible words that you have and stories and imagery and stuff, what would what would you do? That's, that's a good question. Um, I would, I don't know, I would, I don't know, spend more time with people trying to develop a story. Trying to develop my story, I guess, technically. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, that's something, that's something I really think about a lot. So, um, I don't know, that, but that's what I would see. I would just see being with, like, a lot of the playwrights I've met throughout the OPC and mm-hmm. a lot of the other people I've met and just help me, you know, Frankenstein my story together. <laughs> and OPC is the Ojai Playwrights Conference, which is a new works development workshop and you've been a part of that as well for just as long as you've been in my class um were there any particular playwrights that had a profound impact on you that you (laughs) um loved or gave you inspiration or made you maybe stick your neck out a little further than you normally would yeah um bill kane was kind of like the top because uh he came in and actually talked to us Mm -hmm. um and uh i don't know he just kind of Show me that even at like 70, you still feel like your work is not good enough and there's something wrong with it and you need help. Mm-hmm. And he kind of just put everything in perspective. Like it doesn't get easier, but that doesn't mean give up. Like kinda, he kind of showed me that. If that makes sense. Because hmm. it's always great what he does and he 
halfway through it, you've always seen him just kind of break down a little bit. <laughs> a lot of it. Yeah, a lot of it. And then, yeah. so just don't give up, but it doesn't get easier. Yeah, and he unapologetically lets himself go to yeah, that place. exactly. And then shares it. And I respect that because that, that's hard. <laughs> that's really that, hard. That is really hard. Um, so if you were, just as Bill Kane inspired you, if you had any words of wisdom or advice for, like, a young writer, a person maybe who is a little scared, who wants to quit, who doesn't know what their next step is, what would you, what would you say to that young writer? I know how you feel. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, you can't, I don't know. It's hard to give advice to somebody that you're in the same position as. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I would just say that, I mean, a lot of people feel the way you do. And um, I don't know. It's good to actually, like, set yourself free every once in a while, you know? Mm-hmm. Hey. It was hard trying to find a tree big enough to build my ideal tree house. The first tree house I tried to build was with my friends in the meadows. There was a group of three trees and there was three of us. We found wood buried under some leaves and used old skateboards to build platforms high up. We cleared out leaves and branches so we could see the view of Marimani. We were making progress. Until one day we were working too loud and a lady found us in the trees and told us that the property owners found us Hurting the trees, we'd be in trouble, and that we could hurt ourselves. Little did she know we already hurt ourselves. <laughs> we stepped on countless nails and were on the other end of many splinters. The next time we went to work on it, it was all torn down and all our tools were taken. My second treehouse was planned better. See, we didn't try to give up making our treehouse. This time we went deeper into the meadows. So we couldn't be heard or seen. We called this treehouse the Tree Dome. <laughs> we gathered old branches and made one of the three rooms we planned underneath, underneath the tree. It ended up being our only room because one day we noticed the branches were attracting a lot of spiders and a lot of condoms. <laughs> and since no one wants to clean up used condoms and, and since, since none of us were having sex at that age, we abandoned the Tree Dome because you know, used condoms. <laughs> But treehouse number three was all mine. A solo effort. I used to live next to the Pratt Trail. I would explore it a lot. I knew it as well as my own backyard. I found a nice spot, but before I could start anything, it got taken over by somebody's tent. My second choice for the third, for the third treehouse was on top of a hill. I cleared out the brush to make walls and moved a bunch of rocks that looked like they made comfortable chairs. I even made a doorway so I could make another room in the future. One day I went to work on it, I found poop. <laughs> right in the middle of the treehouse, covered in toilet paper. <laughs> yes, yeah, you, you could say my childhood dream ended in a big fat turd. <laughs> this is where I committed to my first real job as a box boy. I worked hard, my coworkers were nice, and I made decent money. I even made a few paper towel forts here and there. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was against company policy, so I stopped. <laughs> this is where I sort of let go of my treehouse dream. You know, there's been a lot of jobs since then. And it felt like, for a while, my job has become making other people's dreams come true. But then I picked up a side job, where I made a yard look nice and beautiful and actually fun and safe for kids to play on. Moving rocks one wheelbarrow at a time and moving decomposed granite over a rock wall one shovel at a time. And my dream of the treehouse came back one hour at a time. I made that yard look exactly the way the owner wanted it. And it reminded me what I could do with my hands. And it made me think of my dream. The treehouse of treehouses. <laughs> Our treehouse will have a plank so we can play pirates. Arr. <laughs> See that smile? Because every kid deserves to let their dad walk the plank. There will be three rooms in our treehouse. There will be the living room, which has lots of comfortable sofas, chairs, and dog beds. There will be a TV with cable and video games. The second room will have bunk beds, hammocks, and a bookcase full of my favorite comic books. You'll like them too, I promise. And the entire Calvin and Hobbes collection, because that's what my dad used to read to me. 
The last room we we would have in our treehouse is the game room. It has foosball, ice hockey, backgammon, and lots of decks of cards. There will only be two ways to get up. The rope ladder, so when you want to be alone, you can be. And the pulley elevator, so you can always force the dogs to hang out. <laughs> I know, I know, the bigger dogs will be hard for you to pull up, but it won't be impossible. Nothing is impossible. It took us a while to own a yard with a tree that has a big enough tree for our treehouse. But look at it. It's perfect. And it's right here in the middle of our backyard. All right, my darling girl, my pirate princess, let's go buy a plank for your old man to walk. <laughs> Big Enough Tree was written and performed by Emilio Uribe in June 2018. Can you tell me, do you, just going back, what is your favorite thing I mean, about the process. Obviously, the wall would be your least favorite <laughs> thing about the process. But what yeah. is your favorite thing about the process? What I like really a lot is um, the performance. I actually really like doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I like the different reactions. Like when I see most, when I go into a piece, I kind of, you know, figure out oh, this might get a laugh, this might get a shock. But then you go onto it, and it's completely the opposite, and you have to roll with it. You know, and it's just like I like that part a lot. Mm -hmm. Just. Uh, you know, stuff that keep me on my toes. And then it makes you relook at your piece and see how you can... Because, like, the best the best part about writing your piece is it's not done until the audience hears it because then they add the other half, like you say all the time. Hmm. So it's always nice to see the other half of it. Does the audience show you something about yourself that you don't see on your own? Um, yeah, I would say, yeah. Like, um, a lot of the times... They show me that, like, what I'm doing or what I'm saying is a lot braver than I think it is. And then they also show me that, they sh I don't know, they show me that I can, someone will listen to me for six minutes <laughs> without <laughs> them saying anything. And it's kind of nice. Mm -hmm. And that they actually enjoyed it and had it, like, laughed and felt other things. Mm-hmm. Well, who inspires you? Are there any, um, I mean, other than obviously Bill Kane, are there other um, writers or shows or books or films that inspire you? Uh, I really like like a lot of mob, like mobster movies like Departed and um, mm. and like uh, Goodfellas and like mm. all that. And that I just love the character development and that kind of keeps me going because I've always been interested in that. Mm -hmm. And like my mom is a good um, motivator. Like she's been through a lot like she had to work several jobs just to keep my brother and I like afloat mm -hmm. and that kind of taught me how to how to work and like my she actually is the one who taught me my work ethic mm -hmm. so I have to give her kudos for that Norma yeah Norma <laughs> um and then I would say uh my aunt's pretty good like she's she's doing really well for her and she's really funny and smart so she gives me a lot of inspiration because like, it's like the normal people that, you know, keep keep positive and, like, continue to do a lot. Like, those guys, like, I, I, I know how hard it is to do that. Mm -hmm. Just get stay, you know, stay positive and, like, keep on learning and and growing. So that, that's, that's a lot of inspiration right there. Hmm. Is there anything left unsaid? Is there anything about about you or the process or your story or where you are right now that has been left unsaid that you would like to just put out there into the world? Every time that question's asked, I just go blank. I can't think of it. <laughs> it's like, wait. Um, I would just say, I guess the best place to start is, you know, blank, white, because then you can go anywhere from that. So I guess don't be afraid when you have no ideas because then, you know, at least you'll get one. Or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's all I can say. Because it all starts with a blank. Page. Yeah, it all starts with a blank. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Well, how, what makes sure when you face off with that big, fat white page of nothingness, what gets the pen moving? I kind of just like to hold the pen and just kind of scribble a lot, hmm. and then just once it starts moving, like once I get going, it just kind of doesn't stop. Wow. So you start with the doodle. Yeah, I tend to scribble through like four pages, though, before I actually start to write. <laughs> so you deal with multiple blank pages at a time? <laughs> is that what you're saying? Exactly. 
takes it takes a while, but it it works. Your piece is just lovely, honey. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting us use it on the podcast, and thank you for coming into the studio. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you, honey. Good to see you. Mwah. <laughs> I'm not good at this. <laughs> Did you do it? That was weird. I talked yeah. a lot. You should, like, finger <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> uh. See you later, pal. <laughs> good fellas right there. Right. Good fellas right there. We are the Townies, and we are back every other Tuesday with original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. I'm Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio and the Townies, Inc., and we are in the business of connecting people one story at a time. The Townies podcast is produced by Lily Brown, Ken Eros, and me, with studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. Thank you to today's storytellers and music contributors, to every single donor, listener, supporter, our board of directors, and to the people who inspire us and keep us moving forward every day. Molly Allison, Woody Brown, Cleo Charpentier, Patrick Lashley, Asa Larmanth, Olivia Lures, Amory Sogrand, April Theriault, Marissa Utz, and so many more. This podcast was made possible in part by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai. We'd like to welcome our new corporate sponsor, Robobank, and you can find more about us and today's storytellers at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. Yeah, your Uncle Bill was, a, was just a laugh riot in the back seat. Did I ever tell you they forgot me in Yakima, Washington? They, they left me at a gas station. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's terrible. I'm okay now though. Like it was they were they were a good like fifty, sixty, they were like an hour away. It took them two hours to come back and get me. <laughs> well my it was one of those bad things where my dad was like in a really bad mood. He was really angry. So like everybody was really quiet in the back seat and my sis my brother and sister were too afraid to say anything because my dad was so mad. And then finally my mom turns around and she's like, What why is it where's Kimmy? And they were like, You left her at the gas station. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha